Hi, everybody. Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Vair podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious green future for us all. Today, I have the great honor of speaking to someone who I've looked up to for many years and who has influenced much of my thinking when it comes to communicating the climate crisis, how to speak to my friends and family about sustainability and the changes we all must make, and also for remembering that the heart can sometimes be a more powerful ally in this fight for a better world than anything else. My guest is Charles Eisenstein, author, philosopher, and social speaker. His book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, was one of the fundamental reads for me that set me on my path to creating Revolvere. And his latest work, Climate, A New Story, has helped me gain perspective about how we address this climate crisis in a way that leads with empathy and understanding rather than anger and division. Charles and I discuss how we find a way to approach a new sort of human collective, a better world, and how we can talk about climate change with our friends and families in a way that will inspire rather than frustrate one another to lead to all of these results. This is a conversation that will get you both questioning and considering our mindsets and our lifestyles. And I hope that this will lead to some positive actions that we can all get on board with towards healing divisions in the world we see today that are leading to the environmental crisis we all face. I would also highly suggest you check out Charles' books and essays, which I've put in the show notes. This is one of those soulful, deep conversations that I wish we would all have more of And I very much hope it gets you thinking as much as it did me. Now, over to my conversation with Charles. Hi, Charles. Thank you so much um, for coming on today. I, as mentioned, have been an absolute huge fan of your work and it's really impacted so much of how I think about executing things and... um, living my own life and running my business and trying to understand human nature a little bit more so that we can all kind of get on the same page when it comes to creating a better world and living in harmony with nature and fixing the climate crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And you've written, you know, two books I'm going to really focus on today. You've authored several, but the two that I'm going to kind of bring up today is The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible and Climate, A New Story, which I just finished and, um, you know, despite the harshness of some of the rhetoric, left me feeling hopeful. So I am very excited to to kick things off. And I wanted to begin with a question that I've really had for several years, actually, since I got my first copy of The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And when you're writing about human nature and the complexities of our relationships now to each other, to you know ourselves in the natural world how did you decide to focus that we must lead with the heart because i think you know i feel like we all sort of deep down know that in some place leading with the heart is what we need to do but it's very much at odds with with what so many of us have been taught when we think about success politics even things like the climate crisis so you know, I think a lot of, of us have been taught to really lead with our brain. And how did you how did you decide to focus on this element of the story to really lead what you wanted to say with that book? Yes, thank you for that question. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> uh, yeah, these days, uh, leading with the heart and stuff, it's almost become a cliche. Uh, so what does that really mean? 
It actually is about uh, a basic trust in the human being. Because as you were saying, we're taught, when we're taught how to make decisions, how to be a good person and so forth, it becomes this very mental thing about ethics. And maybe you evaluate the carbon impact of this choice versus that choice. And do I use paper or plastic and, and or solar panels? What's the, the um, carbon footprint of those compared to, to this other thing? And like, it becomes very mental. And this idea that, that we have to control our bodies with our minds supposes that the body left to its own devices would just pursue its selfish interests and just go for the pleasure and who cares about anybody else. Uh, this, this concept of the, the natural self as basically evil, as, as I mean, in Christianity, it's, it's, the, it's original sin, it's the total depravity of man. In biology, it's the selfish gene seeking, driving the organism to maximize its own self-interest at the expense of everybody else if necessary. Like basically both science and religion, at least institutionally, have taught us that we're evil and therefore progress. And this is like a deep mythology, okay? I'm going to like a pretty esoteric level, but- I like it. <laughs> Let's go there. So, so moral progress becomes a matter of, of dominating your natural self of transcending yourself, of rising above nature, rising above the body into a rarefied realm of, of spirit and the sacred. Well, this conception of moral progress is a poison to the world because look what happens when we see materiality as lesser than, less sacred than a non-material spiritual world. We treat the world as if it were not sacred. We de devalue and degrade not just our bodies and ourselves, but the whole natural world. So, so trusting the heart is saying, actually, your natural desires are to contribute to life on earth, to make the world more beautiful, to be generous. And I think that if you look at, at you, your, your, if you look at your life and the times where you felt the deepest satisfaction and joy, mm -hmm. it wasn't when you finally got that new Ferrari <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever. Uh, it's, it's probably when you, you gave a perfect thing to, the, to a, you, you, were, you were useful, you, were, you um, brought more love into the world. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're not doing that in your life, and you're just accumulating and keeping safe, then you're gonna feel like I'm here for something more than that. Yeah. So this is why we can trust the heart. But it's like, how do you, cause I just feel like it's so funny. I was actually, my husband and I started watching, I never had seen it, but we started watching um, The Wolf of Wall Street the other night on Netflix. And I got so depressed about, I don't know, I, 45 minutes in, I just had to turn it off because I was like, my God, this story took place in the 80s. We're still going this way. You know, it's just, it's so much a story of, you know, there was a lot of, of, of truth in that movie. I mean, it was based on a true story and it really made me think, I was like, you know, I don't think things have changed that much. And, and this, to, this 
guy and to so many people, this is the pinnacle of success right there. You know, it's like yachts and airplanes and private jets and all of this stuff. And, and I worry that it's been so embedded in our psyches from a young age, you know, for so many years, we're talking decades and decades and decades. And, you know, I was also having this debate with my father the other day, because I got quite mad at him. Um, you know, he used to be a hippie in the 70s. He lived in Haight-Ashbury. He, he didn't go to the Vietnam War. He had long hair and he worked in the music industry in California. And, you know, um, he used to like not eat meat. And now, you know, fast forward to him being 70 years old and he, he likes the finer things in life. He's worked really hard. And, you know, that kind of happened for him, that transition in the 80s, where all of a sudden he was successful enough to, you know, buy nice French wine and, and boat shoes and stuff. And he's still the most decent, humble person I know. You know, he's not any, you know, he's not a crazy high flyer, but he likes the good stuff in life. And I, I get quite angry with him because I'm like, how did you... How did you go from being somebody who was a hippie, who was anti-war, who was protesting, who was doing all this stuff to someone that I'm, you know, arguing about whether or not he could eat less red meat or get an electric car or get a heat pump in our house? And, you know, it, it's sort of like, how, how do we, how do we come back from so many years and years and years and our parents teaching us that this was okay and watching our parents do it themselves, you know, how do we kind of start to unpack okay. that? Yeah. Okay. I'll try to <clears throat> do this from the beginning here. Um, Sorry, Wolf no. of Wall Street. Yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. Um, yeah. That was a, that was a strong movie. Uh, <laughs> it really, you know, gave us a mirror to, of, of a certain element of our, collective and individual psyche that's kind of uncomfortable to look at. Uh, however, I don't agree with the perception that nothing has changed. Even the wealthy with their yachts and all that, um, when I interact with them, I get the sense usually that they don't really care as much about those things as they used to. Like they don't actually want that as, as, um, unconflictedly as they did 30 or 40 years ago. A friend of mine um, teaches business school. He's a business professor uh, at Penn State. And he says that 20 years ago when he asked students, um, what's your goal in life? They would all talk about financial independence, early retirement, et cetera, et cetera, uh, success. Yeah. He says now when he asks them, they're all about, I wanna make a difference in the world. I wanna help heal the planet. I want to benefit society, like, and not just a few outliers, but like everybody. Wow. So this is a, I think this is a, an important shift. And as for your father, um, first, I just want to, uh, to honor him as a member of the hippie uh, <laughs> tribe. Yes, because, because man, I mean, back in the day, that was powerful in the 60s and the 70s, it, if you were in that culture, it seemed undebatable that a transformation of consciousness was gonna change everything and we're part of it. Mm -hmm. Imagine the feeling of, of dismay and betrayal when it didn't happen. When, when all of these so obvious, man, in five years, there's going to be no money anymore, man. You know, no, there's not going to be any more war. There's not going to be any more marriage. You know, it's all going to be a big love fest, dude. You know, like that. And it seems so obvious. And, and 
you know, what you ended up with then by 1980, when the 60s ended, you ended up with Ronald Reagan, James Watt, saying trees, trees make more pollution than people do. So I think that, that um, here, here's a trap. If we diagnose the origin of our problem in the um, deficiency of other people, especially the older generation, then we're not actually understanding their circumstances. So, yeah, like maybe there is an element in, and it's certainly, I certainly see it in activism today. Um, I'm sure it was there in the 60s and 70s too, an element of self-conquest, self-denial, asceticism, uh, of not fully embracing the joys and pleasures of life. Mm. Um, this is a subtle echo of the same mentality of conquest that is destroying the world. Yeah. So maybe it's part of his healing to be like, yeah, I'm going to embrace life. I'm going to enjoy life. And maybe you see that, that when you really embrace that, maybe you don't actually need the yachts and the profligate lifestyle. Maybe when you go deeper, this is called Tantra. Mm -hmm. When you really trust desire and see where it takes you, it doesn't take you to the substitutes for real satisfaction because real connection authentic communication, intimacy, that's the real desire. It's yeah. not for these baubles that are substitutes for what we really want. Yeah. So, you know, I would, I, and, and it seems in, in, in the ethical calculus of climate change, it seems like, well, yeah, you know, eating red meat, that's really bad and, and doing this is really bad. Um, a lot of that comes from only seeing carbon or only seeing greenhouse gases, uh, but, and I don't know what kind of red meat your father eats, but I would ask. Farmer's market, like to be fair to yeah. him, all locally made farmer's market, you know, main. So, so like you can make a strong argument that, that pasturing, if you do it well, is much better for the environment than breaking the soil and cultivating uh, and planting crops. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's people who are using livestock to build soil and to restore water tables and restore biodiversity. So it, it's really, for me, it's not a matter, like it's, it's so easy to find some way to criticize somebody. Yeah. Well, and to, to get in these polarized conversations that bypass the real issue, which in the case of agriculture, isn't meat versus vegan, it's industrial versus ecological. And whether you're growing plants or animals, if it's an industrial model, you're going to create, um, suffering and destruction. So anyway, um, like I would just say though that, that it starts this relationship, you know, it starts from a place of, of honoring the journey that this person took. And, and yeah, I could say more, but maybe. Uh, well, no, cause it just, it leads me to my next question. I think it, my next question might actually, you know, kind of speak to what what you're thinking of because I think a lot of of what you talk about in your writing is the ability that not a lot of us have which is to take a step back and you talk a lot about you know doing nothing is actually something that could sometimes be better than moving forward in you know in either hatred or fear or panic um, and I, I see that a lot in myself as a 33-year-old that, you know, studied sustainability, got her master's degree in environmental politics, has been running a sustainable business for, you know, seven years now. And 
you know, I think because I feel such an urgency and I think things aren't moving quick enough and I get very worried and upset that I have to really work on, you know, and I'm sure this is part of what happens when I get into arguments with my parents, you know, because I'm, I'm frustrated. It's not because I don't love them or think they're terrific people. I just need an outlet for my frustrations. And I think when you talk about, you know, you, you wrote this great story or this sort of antidote at the beginning of climate um, about a guy who's in a maze and he can't get out and he's struggling, struggling, struggling and, you know, kind of panicking and running and he's exhausted and freaking out. And then as soon as he sort of stops, takes stock, calms his heart rate down, starts to breathe and thinks about how to genuinely get out of the maze, he ends up finding his way out. And I think that is such such wisdom. I'd love for you to kind of speak to how, how we can do this more as a society, because I think everything is so fast now. You know, we've got our iPhones, we've got tech, the news is constant. Everything just seems so fast that the idea of doing nothing is really difficult. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't say that it's always the time to do nothing. It's when you're trapped in patterns of reaction that make the problem worse. Yeah. And in our society, boy, it sure seems that we're pretty helpless to solve our problems, no matter how frantic our action is. Um, so part of this process is a feeling of despair and paralysis, which is part of the deprogramming from the conditioned reactive patterns. So uh, the, the overarching pattern in modern civilization of, of this is the um, control reaction. If there's a problem, identify something to fight or something to dominate or something to control. If the problem <clears throat> is coming because of control and the technologies of control, then this is going to make things worse and worse and worse. Where, where maybe it does take a stepping back, an acknowledgement of the futility of this in order to discover radically different approaches. So for example, in terms of health, um, our, our conditioned response as a society, if people are sick, is to look for a pathogen. And when you find it, then uh, implement control measures, which could be to kill it you know, with certain drugs um, or to keep it away, uh, to, to isolate, to quarantine, and so forth. So this is um, an expression of the mentality that progress, again, like I said at the beginning, progress comes through some kind of control, some kind of domination of the world. Well, we've been, as a society, generally quite successful at um, isolating, insulating, killing, dominating, controlling. Yet, over the last 50 years, since your father was a young man in Haight-Ashbury, the general health of, of at least my country, but many other places too, Australia, um, much of Western Europe, has gotten worse. Life expectancy continued to rise, although not anywhere near as fast as it did in the first half of the 20th century. Continued to rise some. Now in the UK and the US, it's actually leveled off and beginning to decline. So, so, so we're getting sicker, you know? All these chronic diseases, autoimmunity, What's going on here? Allergies, like half the kids have an allergy now. 
So these, these are not easy, like you can't blame these on a pathogen. Like that whole response of control something better doesn't really work. And, and so it's an invitation to, um, uh, to, to, to let in different kinds of, of solutions, different kinds of responses, like body ecology, like, oh, maybe actually health comes through increasing our relationships with the microbial world, not cutting us off from them. Interestingly, there was um, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that observed that, that almost all people who have serious COVID symptoms, like you get really, really sick, also have gut dysbiosis. They don't have healthy gut flora. Yeah. So like, and this is, you know, not a tenth of a percent of the research money is going into things like this than, uh, compared to, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals and vaccines and stuff. Like this is, so this is just like, none of our problems are actually that hard to solve yeah. when we expand the realm of the possible solutions. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so funny. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of um, Zach Bush. Do you know his work? Um, yeah, no. Yeah, and it, it's so interesting because I, I just think it's, it's, it is that he talks about this a lot when it comes to our health. You know, it's like we cannot continue to, to think that there are simple solutions to all of these things that are going on. He, he talks very rightfully about, you know, the number of children being born now with, you know, huge problems that just are, we're not unseen. I think, you know, one in two of us will get cancer now. One in three children is being born with autism, some form of autism. You know, these are numbers that, that should be really, really shocking us and huge. And I think it's interesting because, you know, it leads me to my next question, which is in the beginning of a more beautiful world, you, you write that, you know, change is rarely possible without a wake up call or a series of wake up call. And then you write, you cannot change one thing without changing everything. And arguably the arrival of the pandemic has, has ravaged us and, and it could be considered as a wake up call to all of us. And, you know, there's, there's tons of pain and loss and hardship that has happened over the past year. And for anyone listening that has suffered, you know, the loss of a loved one or gone through this horrible illness, I don't want to, I don't want to belittle that, that real true suffering and pain, but in the greater sense of what this pandemic is, as you know, a reaction to the way that we have treated the natural world and as a moment that could be considered the sort of great change that you alluded to. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly how many years ago you wrote this book, but do you think that the pandemic is the wake up call that finally gets us to sort of look at changing everything? Do you think this is the moment or do you think this is just a symptom and a, and a consequence? I think it's part of the process of disintegration of our stories, of our deep mythology. But if you look at the number of malnourished children, the, the increase in the number of malnourished children, for example, that has, you know, it's hundreds of millions. Um, the, the, the destruction of businesses that are people's dreams, their hopes and dreams in their entire life savings sometimes invested in these businesses or, or um, suicides. I just read something about, about like a county in Nevada where like 18 children have committed suicide. Thought, was it in the New York Times? I, yeah, I think I yeah. saw it too. 
Yeah, like, like, and and you know, in one of my own children, he's not suicidal, but I mean, he is so depressed because, you know, at that age, I mean, you're supposed to be with your friends, you know, like, well, what about the developmental win developmental window that closes for for toddlers when they only ever see the facial expressions of two people? Like, what's the effect of not seeing smiles? And I'm not saying that um, we should just ignore. COVID because of these things, but, but, you know, can these be part of the conversation too, and not have minimizing deaths be the trump card that, <clears throat> that, that, you know, ends all argument. So yeah, where was I going with that? Um, can About you pull, whether me, pull me back to the original question. Basically whether or not COVID is the- Oh, the wake up, right, right. Yeah. Right. So, so what we're seeing, like we're seeing, uh, a huge destructive effect on society from this small virus. And that, sh which, I mean, from this pandemic, which, you know, compared to past pandemics, I mean, compared to like the Black Death, it's nothing. Yeah. Nothing. So, so the fact that its impact is so huge shows us how fragile our society actually is. Yeah. The fact that we're so fearful I mean, this is, you know, like all, all these chronic diseases and ill health we were talking about, and there's nothing to blame for them. Uh, but there's, it, they generate a, a state of anxiety, a state of there's something wrong here. I don't know what it is. And now here's a focal point for the fear, something that we can do something about. It's, 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 it, it's almost a relief mm. to have actually something that you can, you can identify with your fear and give yourself a feeling of security by you know staying indoors, et cetera, et cetera, then you feel safe. But the feeling of of danger predated COVID, the anxiety. So anyway, I, I see this as part of an initiation for our society, part of a breakdown of the old world, but not necessarily the defining event. It's 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 kind of like an avalanche. You know, where, where, where one boulder hits another and then one hits another and, and pretty soon the whole mountain's sliding down. Yeah, because I think one of my big, you know, like it's really interesting because, you know, speaking of like the fear and, and the different elements that you have of that, you know, my, my husband came down to bed last night and I always tell him not to read the news right before we go to sleep. But, you know, inevitably one of us always does. And he'd read, he'd read a a huge piece in the New York Times on the reality of the climate crisis, what's coming in the next, you know, it, it's, it's coming a lot sooner, I think, than people have even been able to wrap their heads around. I mean, you know, we're seeing growing seasons being disrupted. We're seeing, you know, my parents now own a landscaping company. They, they say they can actually see climate change in the way that, you know, my dad is landscaping in different months now than he used to. Um, and that affects food production. And, you know, we're seeing, vast migration due to things like this. And my, my fear is that, you know, how do we get people to understand, like if, if you're talking about COVID and our response to it, which has been overwhelmingly fear, sort of isolation, all of these things, which to be fair, you know, I'm sure we really need to do to get it under control. I've happily been isolating for, you know, a long time now because I knew that was the right thing to do to protect people around me, even though it has been horribly difficult. But with climate change, it's sort of the opposite where we really need to be together. We need to be interacting. We need to be having conversations. Um, 
it seems like to me coming together do you do you do you think that that climate change is is the next big thing after this pandemic that's going to be the wake up call i think it's quite similar actually in that um the general degradation of the global ecosystem that predates um significant levels of carbon dioxide but now we have a focal point to blame the problem on. And if we can control this one thing, then we'll be fine. Well, I'm afraid that that is a sad delusion because in my view, as you know, from reading my book, I think that that climate change is a symptom of the serious disruption of the global physiology uh, that, that maintains um, homeostasis. Uh, the, the destruction of Gaia's organs, which are forests, wetlands, whales, um, you know, apex predators, um, soil, water. I mean, these are organs of a living being. So if we continue to degrade these organs, it doesn't matter if we cut carbon or not. We might not even see global warming. We could see cooling. But what we will see is derangement just like would happen in your body if you started progressively destroying important organs and tissues. Like you might get a fever, you might get chills, you might get hypothermia, um, but that's not the real problem. Right. So, yeah, um, I, I mean, I could say a lot more about, about climate, but the, um, the, exclusive focus on global warming caused by greenhouse gases, I think ultimately is doing a disservice to environmentalism yeah. uh, and taking our focus away from, from and, and disempowering people. Because when you understand the earth as a living being, then what you can do as an individual becomes so much more accessible. And I could talk more about that in a few minutes if you want. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm, I think I'm going to get there with my questions. But I think just to segue actually into this is, you know, this idea of, of interbeing, which is so central to all of your writing. And, and I just kind of wanted to, to talk about it really, really quickly. And as an introduction, sort of, you know, this idea that we are not separate to each other, we are all connected, you know, and, and not just humans, but the entirety of the natural world. And, you know, before I, you, I ask you to elaborate on that, I wanted to read a passage to everyone that is in um, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And this to me, this to me speaks to exactly what we were just talking about. And you write, we are each other and we are the world. Our society runs in large part on the denial of that truth. Only by interposing ideological and systematic blinders between ourselves and the victims of industrial civilization can we bear to carry on. Few of us would personally rob a hungry three-year-old of his last crust or abduct his mother at gunpoint to work in a textile factory. But simply through our consumption habits and our participation in the economy, we do this equivalent every day. And everything that is happening to the world is happening to ourselves. Distanced from the dying forests, the destitute workers, the hungry children, we do not know the source of our pain, but make no mistake, just because we don't know the source doesn't mean we don't feel the pain. Yeah. 
I think this is exactly what I wanted to get to with the question I asked before, which is that we have to get people to realize that, as you say very correctly, you know, it's not just about getting big corporations to cut down carbon emissions. You know, I see that so often on Instagram. I follow a lot of environmental organizations and everybody is so angry at corporations and putting so much blame on corporations. And that does not mean that I don't think that corporations have a lot to answer for, but maybe it's time we start looking to ourselves a little bit more um, or our more immediate surroundings or, or how would you, you know, extrapolate upon that idea that I just sort of read out because I thought it was such yeah. a <clears throat> poignant one. Yeah. Okay. If you are locked in the mindset that the overriding threat is greenhouse gas emissions, then um, really your best course of action is to spend all your energy uh, pressuring corporations and governments, uh, central global institutions to enact new regulations, new policies, and to change their ways because nothing you do on an individual level will make any difference. Planting a garden, no difference. Riding your bike, no significant difference. Nothing you do as an individual makes any difference. And nothing that you, I mean, it doesn't even matter. Like, like what, if, what if your passion isn't um, gardening or you know, what if it's uh, prison reform, ending the prison industrial complex? What if it's peace? Uh, what if it's um, uh, working with refugees? I mean, there's so much beautiful work to do. What if it's taking care of children? Uh, what if it's uh, singing to old people in hospice as to, 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 to um, bring light to their passage? You know, what if like there's so much healing work to be done and the, and climate change fundamentalism, because it really is a kind of fundamentalism, like any fundamentalism, it says, well, here's the one important thing. This is the overridingly important thing and nothing else matters. So it becomes very, you know, proselytizing. Um, and self-righteous and something to get back to the heart, something in our hearts says that can't be right. It can't be right that these small actions coming from love make no difference. But to validate that heart's knowledge, you have to really dissolve the whole theory of change that runs our society, which says that change happens when you exert a force on a mass. It's Newtonian to validate the, the, the principle of morphic resonance that says that any change that happens in one place creates a field of change and it starts happening elsewhere too. Mm -hmm. Any act of love, any act of compassion, any act of generosity, these make a difference. And in fact, these are a kind of a prayer. It's a kind of a message to Gaia to, to, to whatever, however you conceive of a sacred intelligence operating in the world. It's a prayer to God. It's a prayer to, to whoever is listening. Whatever intelligence is there beyond ourselves that says, here's what I care about. 
I sometimes think about the spirit of Gaia, the spirit of this planet, saying, are you sure that you want me to stay here, nature? Are you sure that you want to live on a, on a living planet and a beautiful planet, not a dead, ruined planet? Are you sure? Because you say that you do, but then you do things that aren't aligned with that. So I think when we make those choices, even if it is to take care of a small garden or to, or to um, get a dam removed from one river or to protect a beautiful building that has some quality of soul in it. Every single time we do that, we issue a prayer. This only makes sense if you accept, again, the heart's knowing that we're not alone here as the only conscious, intelligent, sentient beings on earth. But to accept that the whole planet, the whole cosmos is conscious and we're not alone. If you accept that, then all of the despair and all of the futility no longer makes sense. And, yeah. and I think it's so powerful, this idea that small acts of love and kindness can be, you know, as big of, as big as anything really that we can do as human beings. And, you know, I was, I was, it, it's a really interesting time to be having this conversation because just you and I as Americans, we're in a very unique situation right now with the way that our politics is being run. But I think that there is an argument that almost any, you know, I don't, I don't think of any sort of country on earth as having a, a political system that I would say is the gold standard of, you know, working and empathy and getting it right. Um, but at a time when it's so particularly divisive and love is so particularly needed, how do we, you know, how do we begin to, to, to make change, I guess. I, I was listening to your, um, your interview with Oprah, which was amazing. And you quoted Martin Luther King at one point, um, and you said, you know, you can, or he said that you can use hatred as a weapon, but you cannot use hatred to defeat hate. And I, I thought that was one of the best things I'd heard, you know, to remind me of where we need to try and go. But when, we are so polarized and we are so, you know, I, I'm not going to deny that I look at people that storm the Capitol and are, a, you know, proudly white supremacist and, you know, proud climate deniers. And I can't help, I, I don't think I hate these people, but I don't feel very much empathy or understanding for them. And how do you, how do you curate that? You know, like, how do you, how do you curate yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. First, we have to understand that the problem that underlies all of our other problems is polarization. Because as long as we spend 99% of our energy fighting each other, we're not going to actually be able to coherently achieve anything. We're just going to kind of drift along in the direction we've been going. So the, the, the liberating question for me is, what is it like to be you? And to ask that to the, of the people and even to the people whom I judge the most. 
So we have mental categories for, say, the people who stormed a Capitol building, white supremacist, neo-Nazi, um, you know, whatever, whatever categories we have. And they have categories for people like you as well. Um, so are the, the question is, are these categories true? Do you, have you actually ever talked to one of those people? Or have you only read about them <clears throat> from other people who share your categorization of them? This is, if, if you never reach outside the, the um, echo chamber or the cult that you're part of, you'll never grow in your understanding and there's no, no chance for peace. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> in any situation of conflict, each party has to make a sacrifice in order for there to be peace. And the sacrifice, it's not called a compromise. Okay. The sacrifice is the sacrifice of your identity and the identity you hold of the other person, of the other party. You're a this, I'm a that. People actually, there's a kind of an intimacy and a, a codependency uh, between conflicting parties. They depend on each other to validate themselves as good and right. You have to let go of being good and right, or actually let go of being better and righter than the other person. Because maybe you are right about most things, Cora, but do you really believe that you're right about everything? Or could it be that there's some deeply held belief that you have that in 10 years or 20 years, you'd be like, oh, I can't believe I, I used to think that. But it seems so compelling right now. And I'm not saying to uh, abandon all conviction, but it's a kind of a curiosity. Uh, what, and, and, and anytime that you feel judgment to somebody else, which is essentially dehumanization, mm -hmm. judgment, I'm using it in a specific sense to mean, if I were you, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't think that. I wouldn't say that. Is that true? That if I were you, I wouldn't think, no, if I were you, I would. Well, so what is it like to be you? So I, I, if I were a president, I would, I would get people with polarized views of each other into a room and create special conditions where they could see each other, where they could hear each other's stories. If you can hear another person's story, then it's a lot harder to be in judgment of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, you've led me to exactly something that I wanted to read out. And again, you know, I, this is from Climate, a new story. And um, it was, it, it was so funny. I actually called my mother. So where we're from in Maine, we have, we're a very polarized part we've got of Maine where we have, you know, very, very, liberal people like me alongside, you know, very, very conservative people who, you know, do not want change and, you know, love their guns and support Donald Trump, you know, and, and it's, it's a really interesting coexistence in the area of Maine that I am originally from. And my mother is probably the loveliest out of, out of our family. She has time for everyone and she is the least judgmental person I've ever met. Um, but, you know, I, I actually called her to read her this, this anecdote that you gave about when you went to North Carolina and you met 
a man named Mike who, you know, was living there. And you kind of talk about the fact that he was very much somebody who was very different from you. You know, he was very conservative, um, you know, and he was, you, you were finding a, it hard to find common ground with him. And you say that you finally stop, take a step back and ask him the same question that you would like us to all, you know, think what makes what made you into an environmentalist and you write that is when the anger and bitterness gave way to grief mike told me about the ponds and streams and wild lands that he hunted and fished and swam and roamed in his childhood and how every single one of them had been destroyed by development cordoned off no trespassed filled in cut down paved over and built up in other words, he became an environmentalist in the same way that I did, and I am willing to guess the same way you did. He became an environmentalist through experiences of beauty and loss. Would the guys ordering the chemtrails do it if they could feel what you are feeling now, I asked? No, they wouldn't be able to do it, he said. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that to me is at the crux of of where we need to get to with this climate crisis because it shouldn't be so polarized, should it? You know, how do we start to reach out to each other and find that commonality even when it can seem so far away? So do you have any sort of tangible thoughts on this? You know, as someone who was in an experience like that, I don't know if you remember the encounter. You oh, know, I remember it well, yeah. Yeah, I'd love for you to speak to it a little bit because I think it was, you know, I think everybody that would read that or hear that passage could maybe understand and identify themselves and someone they know a little bit in that moment. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, deep Southern accent, you know, he, he looked every bit the stereotypical hillbilly uh, or, uh, you know, redneck. Uh, funny how, like, it's okay to use slurs like that and not okay to use other racial slurs. Anyway. Uh, you know, and he was talking about the government and the sheeple, you know, like stuff that today would immediately identify him as a right-wing conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he also, like, he had devoted his life to caring for land. And I noticed, actually, before COVID, before Trump, before all of this intense political polarization, I noticed a convergence between the hippies and the rednecks where it wasn't just like the Haight-Ashbury types who were eating organic food and using herbal medicine and stuff. It was also some of these, um, uh, you know, country people uh, who, who distrusted authority, not for the same explicit reasons that the anti-war hippies did, but on a deep level for the same reasons. Yeah. Like, and so there was this convergence and I thought, wow, a new populism uh, is brewing here, which was then destroyed um, by Trump and especially by COVID, where now the people are divided against each other. Uh, different categories of the dispossessed are fighting each other and blaming each other. You know, you have the, the, the um, African-Americans, immigrants, the people of color, uh, indigenous people who have been traditionally dispossessed. You have the more newly dispossessed white middle class, and you know they're none of them are. Well, I won't say none of them, but there is a common, a unifying ground here that 
is not um, being really occupied. Anyway, um, yeah. So, so this this the birth of environmental care from from loss, from beauty, from grief. That can get lost in the dominant narrative of climate change, in which it's all about carbon dioxide. So you can destroy this forest here and offset it with another one there. You can produce fossil fuels here. You can build nuclear power plants. Uh, and okay, you're destroying land. Um, you're, you're, you're destroying uh, land by the uranium mining and stuff like that. But that's okay because look at the numbers. We're producing uh, less, less carbon dioxide this way or, or converting vast swaths of Africa into biofuels plantations. Uh, cutting down the old growth forests of Romania and feeding them into wood chipping machines to get burned in converted power plants in Germany uh, and, and Belgium. Yeah. Like that's happening. And, and those get green credits. Those are labeled green. But if we, and, and in my view in the climate book, I'm saying this is, whatever the carbon numbers say, this is actually harming Gaia and, and, um, making the climate even more fragile because forests anchor the flow of moisture in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm not going to go into all the science there, but but just to say um, that that if we get out of that technocratic mindset and we turn to love of place and our universal care when we are connected to it, uh, to the welfare of of all beings and our universal purpose. Whatever your life purpose is, it roots in service to life and beauty on earth. Mm. That's the new story. The old story was your purpose is risk minimization and maximizing self-interest. Mm. The new story is service to life and beauty on earth. And do you think, because I'm just thinking about it, you know, I've got so many friends who have, you know, like I said, I'm in my early 30s. So, you know, my friends are pretty entrenched in their career paths. And, you know, they've, a lot of them have started families and they've bought big houses and, you know, they, they're, they're pretty far, you know, they've invested in the expensive car, whatever. I've got a lot of people that, you know, not all of my friends for sure, but I'm just thinking of, you know, people that I dearly love, but that might find it quite difficult to think about, how they, you know, take those sort of more corporate jobs and, you know, the big mortgage they've undertaken to, you know, pay for their kids' education that, you know, was the education they got and, you know, and, and take a step back because like, you know, I want anyone listening to this to feel like it's applicable to them. You know, it's not like you have to stop your job as an oil trader or do you have to quit your job as an oil trader? You know, like, but then if you can't afford your house and that, you know, your wife doesn't want you to do that and you have two young kids, you know, how do you kind of, um, how do you start thinking about this if you yep. don't feel like you can totally overhaul your existence? It looks, uh, yeah, from the judgmental outsider's point of view, it looks really simple. Of course, you should quit your job as this, that, <laughs> yeah. or the other thing. But, but you know, um, I, I, a, friend, a dearly departed friend, Polly Higgins, told me a story of, of, I think it's in the book talking to an oil, no, a coal executive. Um, and he's like, you know, I agree with you about this stuff, but I, what can I do? Um, I'm the CEO, but if I 
really changed my company's policies too much, then the board of directors would probably fire me. <clears throat> Middle management would revolt. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, the, the stock price would tumble. Uh, the bondholders would <clears throat> put pressure on the company. I'd be fired and someone worse would come in. I'm pushing the envelope as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Like, aren't we all? Aren't we all? Don't, don't, not all, but most, many, many of us, the people you're talking about, share the experience of being lodged in a system which on a soul level they don't fully agree with. It's not trivial to get out of that situation. And, and even like the, you know, big house and the nice cars and whatever, like if you are in a situation where you're cut off from what human beings actually need, which isn't those things, which is community, which is place, which is connection, which is a feeling of belonging, which, which is to, to see the birds and know each song of the bird just by looking at it and, and what tree the bird lives in and what plants grow around that tree and what medicine can be made of those plants and whose grandmother used those plants to uh, save the life of whose cousin. <laughs> like that sense of belonging, if you don't have that, then who's to blame you for making the best you can of life to, to get some semblance of the security that comes from community and relationship through money, through power. You can't blame people for the circumstances that they're in. All you can do, and we can do this right now, is to affirm, the, affirm that the, the validity of the sense that there's something missing to affirm the truth that actually I am here to bring healing to the world, to bring beauty to the world, to bring life to the world, to be generous, to express my gifts. Yes, that's true. And when we accept that as true, then new courage is born. New choices become visible. Maybe you do leave the job. Maybe you start a new initiative within your job. Mm-hmm. Maybe you become a different presence in the, work, in the workplace. Um, who knows what is born of that? But, but from the uh, acknowledgement of hidden truths, new choices arise. A process of change is set in motion. And I think that, you know, I think that is exactly right. And you know, I think it also, this sort of like this softness, this, this gentleness, this understanding that you're speaking with when it comes to our fellow man and, and the earth. I, I think, you know, another thing, another theme within climate that you write about so much is this, this need to give up the fight, you know, like this constant fight. Um, you know, I think you gave the analogy of like, think of all the wars we've aged from like the war on drugs to the war on poverty to the war on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, none of them have really panned out the way that we would have hoped that a war would just decimate those things. Um, so to use the language, you know, the war on climate change or the fight, you know, for cli- against climate change, you know, is there a new way we should be thinking about, about that, you know, in our own personal actions? Like I said, I'm really guilty of it myself, you know, getting, getting quite worked up and aggressive. And how do we sort of change the discourse on 
on this when it seems so pressing and it seems so terrifying. And, you know, I've got my husband coming down at midnight, you know, saying we're totally screwed. There's so much carbon in the atmosphere. You know, we're, it's just, it's like, it's over. How do you, how do you make that like a softer thing and, and take that element of the fight out of it? And arguably, do we still need the fight because we are at such a perilous moment? There, there, there are times in life for a fight. Uh, but our societies become addicted to the fight, which comes from a worldview uh, uh, that's full of enemies, um, that, that uh, favors monocausal explanations for things. You know, find the bad guy, find the germ, find the carbon dioxide, the one thing. Like that's a habit that denies the complexity, the interconnectedness, the, the relation between the inner and the outer. So yes, there's a time for a fight. And what you can achieve through a fight is limited. It's temporary. You can, you know, try to kill all the terrorists, but by doing so, you generate a new crop of terrorists. You can suppress, you know, bacteria and viruses. You can isolate everybody. But by doing so, you're going to weaken immunity so that the next epidemic is even more dangerous. You can um, lock up criminals. Yep, here's a bad guy. He's dangerous. Get him out of there. Put him in prison. But if that's all you do, you're going to destroy communities, destroy families. He's not going to change. And you're going to get even more crime. So the mentality of the fight, we got to be wary of that. And the same thing can happen with climate. If we just focus on this one thing and we build carbon sucking machines and, and you know, do geoengineering and plant monocrop tree plantations and so forth, like the climate crisis or the ecological crisis will not go away because reducing carbon, <clears throat> that's at best a temporary solution at best and, and and if that fight hypnotizes us and distracts our attention away from soil healing water healing social healing the the conditions that generate the destruction then we're not making any progress so yeah yeah it's and, and it's, as far as like can I say about like it's too late and that urgency um, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, the enemy's at the gates. Do something like when you appeal to really what's happening is that urgency is being hijacked into and, and turned into hurry. Uh, I mean, I'm sympathetic to where she's going with that. Although I would say that, that the, the, um, what brought COVID to us is conquest in a much bigger sense, not just the conquest of nature. Because um, I think it's pretty likely um, that the um, that COVID nineteen um, escaped from a bioweapons facility. Uh, that you know, I mean, this kind of genetic engineering, um, biological weapon research has been going on for decades, mm -hmm. and they do just the kind of things to like, oh, how do we increase transmissibility? How do we increase lethality? You know, like they they make these viruses. And accidents happen.
Yeah. I'm not saying that it was a, some deliberate conspiracy to, you know, reduce the population or something like that. Um, I'm, I'm, I tend to, to be quite allergic to that kind of conspiracy theory, but accidents, I mean, they've happened before. And, and this mentality, so this is also a mentality of conquest, first like making weapons, mm -hmm. but also like let's dominate life. Let's engineer life. This, you know, the, the human being, uh, the Lord and master of nature at the center, engineering everything for his own purposes without respect for life. Like if we do any genetic engineering, it should be, how do we increase biodiversity? You know, what is a gift to the world? So, so yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm sympathetic where, where, where that science is, scientist is going, but there's a lot more to the story. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I think we all need to be just very open to, you know, there is something bad that has happened. It, it, you know, it has come from a place of something that is not good. And, you know, going a little bit more into this idea of how we could maybe tread a little bit more lightly on this earth or not be so scared of the unknown. You know, it's so funny, like last, um, last weekend, I, I live in sort of a, uh, an apartment complex in the middle of London. And I always feel really bad about all the foxes that live in London. I, I don't know why, because I grew up in Maine and I used to see them running free. And I always quite liked them, even though everybody normally hates foxes. And um, we, we have quite a few foxes that run around, you know, at night in our complex. And uh, for anyone who's ever heard a fox cry, it is very eerie. It's quite, um, it's quite a freaky sound, but it's an animal. And I always think, you know, God, we've taken up so much room. There's so little room left for animals anymore. And my next door neighbor, who I know is a good person, but she, you know, she was complaining to our next door neighbor saying, you know, let's call somebody in to kill all the foxes or set up traps to like, you know, kill these foxes because they're so annoying. And I was just like, it really, um, it really depressed me. You know, I was just like, God, is our, our answer to, to, you know, the slightest annoyance. I mean, these foxes, they were trying for maybe three minutes, you know, and so now we need to go kill all of the foxes when we've, you know, developed this huge city in a place that used to be wetland and, you know, forests and so, you know, it just, um, so even just down on a, a much more molecular level than, you know, the big origins of COVID and stuff, how do we, how do we kind of get people to realize like, you know, just because that is annoying to us as a human being, it does not mean that we should go and kill an innocent animal so that we are totally at ease. Yeah, I, I feel you. Um, I have moments of, of despondency like that too, when it's like, wow, we have a long, long way to go. <laughs> a long way to go. Yeah. There's so much healing. We're, we're, we are, at the beginning of thousands of years of healing. Even if we heal our society 10%, the world will be so beautiful. Like you could hardly imagine how beautiful the world could be even with 10% healing. But yeah, like where does that mentality come from? Yeah. You know, and, and can you actually ask that question with curiosity and not blame? The trap is to dehumanize that person to make them into something contemptible as soon as you do that there is no healing possible so this is the this is the the mirror image of that person in yourself 
Like, are you doing to her on some subtle level what she wants to do to the foxes? And this well, isn't about being good and moral, okay? This is about if you are in that state, you cannot be a force for healing. It's practicality. Compassion is practical. It's the only way that you can understand what your role is in the healing project. I think, you know, and I think finding compassion in these moments is, is extremely difficult and extremely necessary. And it's something that I'm trying to practice more in my day to day. And, you know, I think touching back upon this, just circling back to kind of in respect to the climate crisis, this idea of compassion, you know, we've touched upon so many different elements of things, but in terms of the climate crisis and interbeing, if you were to sum up your, your greatest sort of like hope, I guess, from this moment in time, you know, what you're, you're writing about, the fact that even 10% healing, maybe 10% more acknowledgement of this idea of interbeing, you know, what is giving you hope in regards to our ability as humans to overcome, not overcome this, but, you know, to kind of create a more beautiful world? If you have hope, that is. You can also answer and just be like, no, um, <laughs> we're screwed. No, we're not screwed. Good. Um, the, um, the despair seems quite rational, but it doesn't take into account how big the world is and how vast the realm of possibility is. Mm. Um, and, and some of this expanded possible, it's, it's, it's been coming in. Um, in the form of the things we call holistic and alternative that can achieve results that are just beyond, you know, um, from uh, regenerative agriculture that, that builds an inch of soil in just a few years. In school, they told us it takes 500 years. Like there are farmers doing it in a few years to, to like um, healing technologies that are just completely invisible to, to conventional medicine. Um, I mean, there are, there are several herbal protocols, for example, that are incredibly effective at healing COVID that, that are just not a research priority. There's no money in it. You can't patent them, for example, um, to like, I mean, even like the realm of, of, uh, I hope this isn't like a turnoff, but, um, uh, UFOs like disclosure is happening. Things that like, you know, not, you know, by like the Navy, um, by, by, by government sources, they're like, oh yeah, this phenomenon that we've been ridiculing for the past 50 years and destroying people's careers by calling them cranks and pseudoscientists. Well, sorry, actually it's authentic. It's been real the whole time. Um, and like, what does that say about what else is real? that we have pushed to the margins. Mm. So as I become more aware of these things that are wanting to come in out of the margins, the more I realize that despair is, is irrational. So then the question becomes, what does it take for us to, to, to soften the boundaries and let the miracles, which a miracle is actually something that is impossible from a given story, but but possible in a new one. They're not like against nature. 
I mean, and I think that is a really, a really beautiful place to to draw the line, Charles, because I just think I, I don't think you could say it any any better in terms of, you know, where I hope that we are heading. And, you know, I think I think also just reminding ourselves that despair, like nothing good comes of despair. You know, there is no action that comes out of it. There's not really, you know, unless you would disagree, it's sort of like um, no despair is part of the process. You know, it's 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 the it's the feeling of it's it's coming face to face with the futility of what you've been doing and how you've been being. And it just says, stop. It's paralyzing even. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a necessary phase. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, now that you've said that, I do have one more question because okay. I think that, you know, this, I've seen so many people in COVID you know, I think there's been, there's been so many amazing things happening, you know, like, like I mentioned, my parents own a landscaping company and a garden shop. And my mom was saying, you know, I had people coming with their children to the garden shop and buying seeds. You know, she was sold out of seed, you know, she's never done that before. And she was like, it was incredible to see young children with their families, you know, wanting to learn how to grow their own food, et cetera, et cetera. Like moments of true beauty, as you mentioned, but then there have been, you know, so many people that have just spent this entire pandemic, you know, over here in the UK, a lot of people have been furloughed, which means that they're still getting paid. And, you know, they're kind of just sat on their couches, watching Netflix, playing games. They haven't really used this opportunity to do much at all. And do you have any sort of, um, any sort of thoughts on how we can maybe inspire a little bit more action from our fellow man or is that really just you know my husband and I have this debate whether like all the time whether or not the only thing you can ever do is lead by example and just hope it works out or if there's something more yeah yeah often you do have a role to play in in somebody's transition out of that state of watching Netflix on the couch Uh, and to play that role it starts with the thing I was talking about before, the judgment, you know? So if you have any shred of contempt for those people, Mm. like, look, there's those families doing their gardening and what's wrong with you? You know, what's wrong with you? If you have any shred of that, you cannot be helpful. All you'll be able to do is give them pressure, try to shame them uh, into getting off their ass. And that actually will exacerbate the condition because it's not like they want to live like that. They don't, they don't feel powerful to do it and making them feel worse about that. Isn't going to help. So, so whatever. And, and sometimes there is like a pep talk, like sometimes there is, I'm not going to say never, you know, um, tell someone to get off their lazy ass and do something like there is a moment for that too, but how do you know what to say? in that moment. It comes from seeing the part of them that is ready and willing to live in another way. You have to actually see that in their soul, to know that for them, that this isn't really you. And to know that, or to be at least listening for the moment where that latent willingness is ready to spring into action. And then you know what to say, whether it's tough talk or, or a gentle suggestion, 
or modeling it. Um, but, but it's that soul connection um, and, and that reverential way of seeing them that's like seeing with eyes of love, uh, not judgment. That is how you develop the skill to know what to say and when to say it. Do you think that that's what, you know, it's, it's actually leading me on to just another thought is that like, do you think that developing, do you think we're missing that skill? You know, it's like, I think that it's a really interesting moment with, you know, in the rise of social media and, you know, I've seen so much on Instagram last year, you know, like the whole cancel culture thing. And it, it's, 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 it's very demoralizing. I don't think that there is a full substitute for physical in-person engagement. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's been hard for me, just like it's been hard for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and I think that we need to, um, we have to face that, that, and, and, and to integrate the pain of disconnection because ultimately all of the measures to fight COVID, the quarantines, the masking, uh, the lockdowns, um, the rationale for those will never go away. If it's not to save, you know, X number of lives from COVID, well, it'll save Y number of lives from flu or even common cold, mm -hmm. which kills tens of thousands of old elderly every year. There's always gonna be a reason to stay separate. Reason meaning from the mindset of risk minimization. So we have, if we're ever going to go back to a world of singing together, dancing together, weddings, festivals, performance arts, if we're ever going to go back to that, it's not going to be because we're all safe now. It's going to be because we hold those as sacred, not as the only sacred thing, but we have to stop holding risk minimization and death postponement as the most sacred thing. Mm. There's more to life than surviving it. Yeah. There's also living. And, and yeah, I just want us to, in most of my podcast now, I'm, I, I put in a word for the value of togetherness. Well, I think that that is a beautiful, a beautiful place to aspire to get to. And again, saying, you know, we, we've, we've got to keep people safe. And, and I think, but I do think you're right. Like anything in life, there is an element of risk. And I think eventually it's just going to be what is the more important thing here. You know, if we're talking about teenagers committing suicide in Nevada on much bigger, bigger scales than ever before, you know, what 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 is that looking like so i think you know for old people committing suicide by not eating like like you know what if it's an old person in a nursing home and they never get to see their kids or grandkids again except through a glass and you say well it's to keep you safe like is that really in service to life like this is the kind of question we have to be asking and i don't want to say okay therefore you know ignore covid but let's hold this sacred also. Yeah. yeah.
Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Charles. That was, that was wonderful. And um, I can't wait to see what you come out with next. And um, I'll link the books and resources we talked about today um, with all the show notes and everything. And, and just thank you very much. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, thank you, Cora. Me too.